Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Hiraith is back after a short hiatus and, well, what have we missed? Nothing too big, of course. Only the election of a new Plaid Cymru leader, the resignation of a former Prime Minister from Parliament, a suite of UK parliamentary by-elections, a controversial decision by the nationalist Eboth, and perhaps a little bit more. Joining me to discuss this and the heartbreak of being a Wales football fan is Richard Martin. Hello, Richard. Hello, Matthew. And Kerry Davis. Hello, Kerry. Evening, gents. So, should we start with the uh, first bit of massive news we managed to miss when we were away, which was the well, the election of Renat Yorweth as Play Cymru leader. And obviously, I think we have to, um, as is only fair, you know, when we get things right and when we get things wrong, uh, to, to to talk about it. And obviously, me and Richard got were uh, horrendously wrong, and uh, Kerry was incredibly correct and actually predicted that Reen would be leader. So, well done, Kerry. You can pat yourself on the back. I will do. I will do. It's weird <laughs> to get a political uh, insight correct, so I'll take that one. Um, but uh, we'll go with Rich. Rich, what was your assessment of uh, Reen's election, and uh, what do you think will happen now? Oh, sorry, Matt. I was just finishing that slice of humble pie that I was uh, enjoying for a second there. One of the great things about doing this podcast over the last few years has been that when one is wrong, our wonderful listeners and good friends in the Welsh political scene will very happily tell you that over direct message or WhatsApp upon release of the podcast. And I think it's fair to say that my phone was alight uh, with messages telling me quite how wrong I was um, within 24 hours of the last pod uh, being published. Um, I, I think you look at the what Ply Company have done. I, Shreen ultimately was probably right to make the decision that he did. You know, don't leave the Senate. Don't take a uh, a big gamble on um, potentially winning Anis Morn. Certainly, if you look at what's happened since he won, which, you know, we're, what we're looking at four days since he was made official as the as the leader, I, th- I think the advantage for Plaid Cymru as a, as a Senedd group is that there is a strong sense of continuity. Some of the toxicity that had surrounded the last um, last few months has been taken away. Uh, there has been progress on addressing Project Paup, the report that uh, crystallised some of the core issues in Plaid Cymru and the Plaid Cymru group. I think the question really is for Reen who came second in the last leadership election, a comfortable distance behind Adam Price, but also an equally a comfortable distance ahead of Leon Wood, is what what is his leadership going to be like? This is an unexpected turn of events. What does it mean for the party? The party is facing a very tricky UK election within 18 months of him becoming leader. I mean, I suppose I should start with fundamentally, the party has a lot of problems. We all know that now very clearly. Can he address those problems? But the big one certainly as you look forward to the future, is, well, what what is Plaid Cymru for? Um, What is its path to government, if indeed that's what it aspires to be? It is too soon, undoubtedly. But I think Sheen comes into the role without people necessarily having a clear idea about what his personal leadership vision is for the party, and it will be for him to carve that out. And we wait and see. And as we were just talking before the pod started, there was an intervention by uh, former leader Leanne Wood um, just before the nominations closed. And um, because we on this pod had 
trailed that there might be a female challenger to Freen for the for the leadership um, that didn't materialise, but that the party has recognised that having a female potential deputy or co-leader, whatever the model ends up being, is something that they might pursue. So a lot of unanswered questions. I think we'd, we'd probably all like to congratulate Treen on uh, uh, his promotion to the leadership of the party. And um, we look forward to speaking with him uh, at the earliest possible opportunity. How about yourselves? Yeah, right. I, I've, done, I've, done, I've done some work with Reen uh, earlier this year, and it, it does give you a different perspective when you meet people, the people we're talking about in the pod regularly. It was the first time I'd met Reen in person, and I was impressed. And I can see that he's got those qualities you want, or someone I'd want as that leadership figure at the head of a party. So I, I'm going to be intrigued where he takes it. I think it's into the bigger picture of you've, just talk through, Rich, you know, where are played at the moment. Reed has come in in an awkward time. You know, there's no getting away with it. It's, it's a rebuild the culture within the party. Is that something Reen's going to lead on or will he delegate that to someone else? But it's kind of, you know, I, I think it's going to have to be that kind of position of really storing up things, getting the culture back where you want it to be and then building ahead of the next Senate election. So it's a, it's a big ask, but I've got no doubt, having spent some time with Reen, you know, he has got those qualities. I'm not sure how everything else in the party plays out, but um, it's, you know, the one thing which is interesting is that that kind of move to Westminster isn't going to happen now. So it does leave a kind of Reen-sized hole in Anglesey. So I think Clyde have got where they needed to be, but the next steps are going to be really interesting. And as you said, Rich, that hasn't really been laid out in the leadership contest we didn't have. So it'll be interesting. I'm sure it's going on inside the party on the WhatsApp groups, Clyde people are a part of and things like that. But we'll have to wait and see. But um, I did watch First Minister's Questions today as I generally do, and I thought it was a safe, assured start, which is what the party wants. It's just now, where's the cooperation agreement going to go? Those big ticket items. So it's watch this space kind of position. Matt? Uh, yeah, interesting that you picked up on the, you know, the, the lack of contest. I think that the lack of contest is, is good in some ways for Plaid Cymru in that it provides a sense of stability. You don't have to have in the news every day that they had this big uh, report that exposed massive problems within the structures of the party. But also at the same time, you don't get uh, the ability for primary candidates to set out their stall about what they would do to the party itself, but also what they would do to Wales if they were ever elected. And, you know, we're, we're, about 18, we're between 12 and 18 months away from a general election, probably. So... For small parties, parties like Plaid Cymru, especially parties in, in Wales, where, you know, we don't have, apart from our, our present selves, of course, and a few other, you know, wonderful others, we, do, we don't have the best media coverage uh, of our politics. Um, so it is very difficult for parties like Plaid to get a big national platform, something that a leadership election probably would have done. And, it, you know, we talk about that reading-sized hold in this morn. It's now much more difficult, probably, for Plaid Cymru to take that seat off the Conservatives. Also in seats like Carmarthen, the new Carmarthenshire seat, that's probably going to be a very defensive election for Plaid Cymru in the next general election. And these are the sort of things that big media campaigns can really help with. They can start, you know, they can put your candidates on a, on a give them national profile, uh, allow them to cut through in a way they probably wouldn't do with the general sort of day-to-day -day Welsh media. Uh, and so for that reason, 
not that reason alone, but for that reason, I think it is it is a real it's a negative for Black Pyramid that they didn't have a contest. I think because it would have done both those things. It would have allowed them to set out their stall and potentially potentially work out what the party really wanted to do, work out some spaces in sort of Welsh government policy where they can improve perhaps when it comes to the next election, but also just in sheer sheer column inches or clicks and views online, you kind of need that attention and now they don't have it. If I can just put a counterpoint on that, um, as somebody who's been away from Wales for a couple of weeks uh, and away from the UK for a couple of weeks, I don't think that if the Plaid Cymru uh, leadership election had been conducted in musical form naked, they would have got any column inches because there has been some other news in the UK political scene over the last um, two weeks. And I also apologise for the mental image there. I didn't mean to place that in your mind, but you won't be able to stop thinking about it now. Um, the you know, I, I actually think in a way it, it would have been a complete waste of time if that's what the purpose was, because you don't get former prime minister voting out of parliament after he's already quit. Sure. Um, first minister of Scotland arrested, you know, all of this stuff, you know, there would have been no traction in the UK media. And Plaid Cymru could not have planned any of that, of course, but I think I think it would have not had the desired purpose that you're talking about there, should they have had it. Again, if I could just be devil's advocate, it's not every day, especially over summer, where former prime ministers get kicked out of the Houses of Parliament, nor is it the everyday occurrence when former first ministers of Scotland get arrested. So whilst I don't disagree that certainly in the last fortnight or so, it probably wouldn't have had much cut through, that's not to say that there wouldn't have been any coverage over the summer, especially in Wales, where you know England and Scotland very likely to have quite a series of contentious by-elections. Yes, no, fair enough. In the UK media, it probably may not have had huge rating cut through, but certainly in Wales, I think it would have. And it would also have given an excuse for these candidates to be going in and around Wales, you know? You too, and Plaid Cymru is interesting. But I've just joined the cricket from a, a long day in work, and it's getting very exciting. Very, very in, close, uh, isn't it? Edge yeah. Cummins is just hitting sixes all over the place. It's just, we'll go back to the politics, but you can't beat a tight ashes finish. But regarding Reen, I, I understand totally what you mean, Matt, and it would have given a platform to some other figures implied to be more recognised in the public, which would be good, because I don't think there are many uh, at the moment who are widely recognised. But I, I think the issue which brought Reen to the leadership, which is the kind of report and all the issues that were addressed, uh, not having a leadership contest gives the party more time and a focus on those issues and getting that culture where they want it to be. So I think that in the scheme of what we want from our political representatives is, is a good place for the party to be. Um, and for what it's worth, so Kerry, my understanding is that actually good progress is being made on the Project Power uh, report implementing a number of those recommendations. And my understanding, again, is that there is hope by the Plaid Cymru Conference in Aberystwyth in October that a large percentage of those recommendations would have been implemented. So we, we've talked about this before when we did the the part of the week that Adam resigned. And to be fair to Plaid Cymru, I don't think they have lost sight of how important that report is. So there seems to be concerted effort amongst basically everybody whom I know in the party to, to make sure that is at the forefront of what they're doing. Absolutely. Right, gents, should we move on? As as mentioned, it's been a quiet couple of weeks um, since hmm. we last recorded. So is there anything that's come out of the last couple of weeks that we want to pull out? I mean, uh, there's been an awful lot of column centimetres uh, devoted to 
an awful lot of the stuff that's gone on. But is there anything pertinent from a Welsh point of view or something that we could cover that we think uh, would you know would be useful for our listeners? I have a funny feeling you would like to ask me about the um, situation that's gone on in the Cunnell Valley, Merthyr Tydfil seat. That would not surprise me if you wanted to discuss that at all. No idea what you're talking about, mate. Um, no, go ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Matthew. Matthew, there are rumours abound that <laughs> the Labour no. Party is is uh, through its candidate selection process trying to weed out um, potential members or existing members that it is not the leadership of the PLP is not massively enamoured with. Is there any truth to that? That's a really difficult question. I think because fundamentally, all these decisions uh, in terms of the uh, red on red seat selections have been have been democratic. They have they have been taken by the members of those those new constituencies. So it's very hard to say that there's been interference in terms of any way uh, in, in in terms of the party trying to impose its will on local members. However, I do know for a fact that in the Tenor Valley Merthyr Tidville seat selection, there was uh, Beth Winter was concerned about the time time frame of the contest as well as the fact that there would be no in person hustings. So yeah, certainly the the I, these these selections are not uh, being carried out with a, with a big run in uh, that would allow for a prolonged period of campaigning by either candidate. Uh, but I, I suppose that that is no, of no benefit to either side. Uh, there's been another example of this in Birkenhead, where the 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 two candidates were both sitting MPs. It's widely reported that an MP in a neighbouring constituency was about to retire. Uh, so they, there was no need for a contest, in fact, but one, one, one happened anyway, and it's just so happened that the MP that lost that seat was on the left of the Labour Party. So certainly the, it doesn't seem like the left are doing particularly well in these uh, seat selections. But but again, I have to reiterate, they are being done democratically by the, by the members. Uh, and that's really fundamentally all you, you can say. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's incumbent upon uh, the left of the Labour Party and the right of the Labour Party uh, to make sure the processes are f- as fair as they can be. Uh, and then, you know, even if their candidate wins uh, in certain selections to make sure that all these issues are ironed out and brought to everyone's intention, because if they're not, you have no leg to stand on as far as I'm concerned in terms of crying impropriety. So there's there's no suggestion that the invisible hand of uh, Lotto uh, was was seen in any of the, uh, the structures because... It, Keir Starmer and his team have been quite ruthless in their selection shortlisting um, elsewhere. This was a this particular case was a case where two sitting MPs were competing against each other. But there, there's there's a kind of uh, a sort of narrative brewing among the left that this is a purge or some some kind of uh, influence operation is going on behind the scenes to try and make sure that the Labour Party is reshaped in. You know, in the image of the current Labour leadership, maybe that's not something. Maybe that is just the way things are when you're, you know, when you're in power or when you are leading the party. Is that you do remake the party in your own image, and we shouldn't necessarily be uh, expecting anything different. And if you're out of favour, just as there were a number of what you might call centrist um, Labour members in the under the Corbyn regime, that um, you know that's just swings and roundabouts deal with it I've got, I've got three things to say on this firstly yes under corbyn candidates were still imposed on constituency labor parties that happened two this is a tale as old as time 
the Labour Party has been known for forever, and all parties the same, to to put to shortlist candidates that are preferred options of the leadership. Historically, this has been the case. You, you I, I've heard incredible stories of them picking it down to three candidates, uh, one who doesn't live in the area, one who is completely inappropriate to be a political candidate, and the third one who just so happens to live nearby and could be an MP. That is, that's happened for forever. And you know what? Sometimes it's massively backfired on the Labour Party and they've picked the person who is completely inappropriate to be a candidate. Number Number three... The membership of the Labour Party has fundamentally altered since Corbyn left power. There are fewer members of the left. There are fewer members, full stop, of the Labour Party. And I would assume that the majority of those who left have come from the left of the party. So there are fewer members to back left candidates in seat selections. And that's what Matt, it fundamentally Matt, boils down to. How about this then? I, I'm reluctant to get involved in this because my social media is just full of Labour infighting and sniping and... What about what about anything going on in Welsh Labour? How might we see any of this kind of preferred candidate approach, although done very democratically and by the book? How might that rear its head in any kind of future Welsh context? So I think friend of the pod, Richard Wynne-Jones, said something on Sunday Supplement uh, in the last week about would Mark Drakeford be selected in the current climate? What, what, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot because these are difficult things to talk about for Labour side of things. But you know, how do you see that? Is that a fair call? And do you see an influence on Mark Drakeford's successor? So again, I think if you... <laughs> thanks for this, Kerry. Love, love these easy questions. No, I, I think it's really important to create a distinction here. So. The thing that UK Labour Party, the UK Labour Party, has authority over in Wales is the selection of MPs in Wales. They ha- they control the rules re- relating to selection in Wales. In fact, Mark Drakeford voted against the uh, selection process for Cannon Valley and Merthyr at the Welsh Executive Committee. So, you know, that, I think that gives you some insight to how the senior figures in Welsh Labour feel about the UK Labour Party's selection processes. However, it's important to create the distinction here. In a Senate setting, it's the Welsh Executive Committee, the Welsh Labour Party, which has control over candidate selection and shortlisting processes. So perhaps insofar as certain MPs may prefer candidates who are more aligned to the UK Labour leadership, maybe that will have some influence, but constitutionally speaking, it doesn't because MPs have no say in a Welsh Labour leadership election beyond their vote as a party member. Sure, they may exert some influence, but constitutionally speaking, they have no actual influence. It'll be Welsh Labour MSs and constituency Labour parties and uh, Labour Party affiliates that make the decision on who gets on the ballot, and it will be Labour Party members and affiliate members who decide who becomes leader fundamentally when it's whittled down to the two or three it may be so to answer your question kerry you have to create distinction and in terms of the leadership no i don't think it'll have a massive influence so sticking with that theme um i think there was just an interesting thing that we'll just pick up on because if people haven't seen it already it's probably worth casting their eye over former podcast a former here i live pod event guest Jerry Hassan from Scotland wrote a very interesting piece over 
the weekend that was published in a Scottish newspaper. I can't remember which one. The um, National. The National Scotland. Remember, we used to have something like that, mm, if yes. you remember correctly. Oh, R.I.P. R.I.P. The National, he wrote a very interesting piece in the National about the relationship between Scottish and Welsh Labour. And uh, now this this was really interesting to me. It was it was also rewritten um, and posted today by Will Haywood, um, continuing his cracking form at uh, Wales Online. And I just I think it's worth mentioning for us because certainly as somebody outside of the Labour Party who has observed several decades worth of success for the Welsh Labour Party in winning elections and looking at Scottish Labour which has had uh, certainly a decade and a half of not winning elections and barely winning anything at all, in fact. One, I've always worked on the assumption that Scottish Labour would be pretty wise to look to Welsh Labour and say, well, what are you guys doing right? Maybe we should try and do something similar and learn from your success. And we learn, um, thanks to some anonymous quotes from Welsh Labour staffers, that actually... Scottish Labour's not that fond of Welsh Labour and, in fact, looks at Welsh Labour and thinks, no, shut up, do what we're doing and say what we're saying, because, you know, this is the Labour way. And I wonder, uh, as a Labour man, through and through, Matthew, whether you have any observations about that article, because certainly for myself reading it, I found it quite surprising. Well, I didn't find it that surprising at all. Really. I think for a long time now, people have been asking the question, why does no one listen to Welsh Labour? And it's probably fundamentally because they don't like what they hear. The Scottish context, of course, is very different from the Welsh one. Scottish Labour ceded the flag. They ceded that ground so early on to the Scottish National Party that now they've put themselves in such an ideological prison of their position that they cannot contemplate moving towards that ground. And, you know, conversely, what Welsh Labour did after a very disappointing election result in 1999 is it firmly planted its tanks on that civic national uh, middle ground that we have in Wales in terms of national identity. And it's worked wonders for Welsh Labour, but fundamentally to keep that logically consistent, you have to make certain concessions in, or, or, or just ideological statements that the UK is actually a is, a is a voluntary union of four individual nations. You know, that's a very difficult thing for Scottish Labour to, and English Labour, of course, to contemplate. Scottish Labour, because they, they have the scars of the last uh, 15, 16 years against the SNP, uh, and English Labour, because fundamentally, one, they don't want to look weak on the union compared to the Conservatives, because they fear that may have a negative impact on their polling in England, but also because they need Scottish seats to win the next general election. So... Even the concept that it could be divisible is risable to UK and Scottish Labour. There's this, I'm going to get really, really geeky here, and I'm sure a landlord is going to shout at this when he listens, but there's this really fascinating thing in land law. No one has ever said that before, by the way. There's not nothing fascinating in land law. But there's this idea of joint tenants and tenancy, tenant, uh, tenancy in common, right? So joint tenants, if there's, say, for example, there's two people, they own the whole, but there's no uh, identifiable share. They simply own the whole together. And there's some legal theorists who believe that even identifying a share creates what's known as a tenancy in common. It means that you could theoretically split it apart, sell different bits off, et cetera. And that's fundamentally what we've come to now in the, in the idea between uh, Welsh Labour and UK Labour is that UK Labour 
fundamentally think that the UK is is a, is a joint tenancy. It, it is indivisible. It cannot be split apart. And to even contemplate that idea opens it up to risk and that it might fall apart. And I think that's fundamentally where we are now. Have they ever tried speaking to uh, the SDLP about this question? It's a, it's a really good question, Rich, and I would love to know the answer. I mean, I've, I've been... As we approach the, the the next Senate election, I mean, a lot of people in Welsh Labour are concerned about that uh, process because they don't know how uh, it'll work in terms of campaigning in a constituency with with numerous members who might get elected. And the thing I have always said is, well, they've done it quite well in Northern Ireland. We should probably speak to our sister party to see how they do it. Uh, and there are other things I think that they could probably speak to the SDLP about. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, that is that is the. Again, speaking as someone as an observer of the UK Labour Party, it never ceases to amaze me how little uh, people know about the UK Labour Party and its relationship with Northern in Northern Ireland with the SDLP, and how I remember I remember infamously now Patrick Maguire, um, the um, <laughs> the former Times Red Box writer. I can't remember where he is now. Is he still at Times Red Box? But uh, yeah, former New Statesman now at the Times. Complaining that Keir Starmer didn't have any representatives from Northern Irish Labour in his um, in his shadow cabinet um, or shadow front bench team, and um, you know it is just it is just baffling to me. It absolutely baffles me this kind of weird psychosis. But it does feel to me, and you know, I don't want to dwell on this because although it might be Hiraith Pod fodder um, for our listeners, and it is very much firmly up our geeky constitutional street, I do wonder what you think the implications might be for Welsh Labour should Scottish Labour have a resurgence at the next UK uh, general election because Scottish Labour does have more control over its candidates in Scotland it is a more separate party I believe than Welsh Labour is from UK Labour you know what what the effect of a more successful Scottish Labour and a more successful English slash UK Labour would be for the Clear red water. We we had a lovely uh, lovely exchange on the Hiraith group chat about this. Is that is that n- straight of clear red water narrowing, Matthew? Uh, I mean, I'm going to ask you a first question, which is what would it mean for Welsh Labour? I think. Well, unfortunately, it'll probably mean they're even less important than they are now, which is horrible, sad state of affairs and a reflection, I think, of the value that UK Labour has attached to Scotland over the last ten near near enough ten years since it lost all the seats in 2015 feel that they absolutely need to do everything possible to get them back. Whereas Wales is sort of always just, well, we get enough seats from Wales, it's fine. So I think that, unfortunately, it will mean that Wales and Welsh Labour is is listened to ever so slightly less than it is now. Uh, and what was your second question? Clear red water. That, I think, fundamentally boils down to whom the next Welsh Labour leader is. I think certainly under Mark Drake, but I can see no no narrowing of that gap, let's say. I, I just want to I just want to jump in and just say I don't think it is just the seats issue for UK Labour from Scotland, which you know many people think they need to have a majority or might have done before recent events, which we'll probably talk about now. But it, you know I still think UK Labour and Labour are a unionist party to all intents and purposes, and keeping Scotland in the union, you know, is an important aspect of what Labour want to achieve so that that's one of the drivers by some of what they're doing in scotland as well it's not just about having seats in westminster or hollywood it's just uh, 
the, the Labour view on the world is to make things better for everyone and not, you know, break things down. Um, a fair thing. I'm right there, Matt, in a very simplistic way. But I think that's one of the views on why Scotland is so important currently is that, you know, it has been very, very close to breaking away from the rest of the UK. And then that, that does diminish the UK in many respects. We can move on now, Rich. I presume you're going to go on to the the other party, which is ripping itself apart on my timeline, <laughs> and the, cons- the conservative shenanigans during your kind of period of recess and what you might have missed. My period of recess. Well, I uh, well, I, I always think there's a question about that, that we do in this podcast is what do we do that no one else do? What is the approach that we can bring? Because you know, London media has gone to town on all that stuff when. Um, uh, political gravity finally caught up with um, a certain former uh, prime minister who finally accepted, well, he didn't accept consequences. He ran away from the consequences, which I think is actually possibly more emblematic of his character than anything else, is that he didn't actually stand and fight his corner. But I think, I mean, what 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 is the implication for Wales? I mean, I think that's the, the thing that, what does it mean for us here? Does it mean anything, frankly? Um, because as I know, I also watched First Minister's questions this morning, and you know there was plenty of talk about uh, the events in the House of Commons of the last few days. But you know, I don't think it fundamentally changed anything. Uh, any any thoughts, gents? Yeah, I, I I think the landscape in the last two weeks has changed dramatically for me in terms of what the next election will bring. You two will have uh, both on record and off record will know that I didn't think. The next election would be a walkover. Um, it would be it would be a close run thing. But the last few weeks, let's call it the shenanigans of our one time prime minister, the the by elections which have followed by various people, which I think shows a complete lack of commitment to people they're supposed to represent. I think the COVID inquiry, which we will come up, is going to go on for years. It's going to go through our next general election. So. Rishi Sunak, whatever he wants to do, he cannot get away from some of these kind of stains on the Conservative Party. I don't know, you've probably both seen it, but the latest video which appeared, and I know it's on a a party which people were aware of and it's been investigated and things like that, but that's back in the news. You've got the honours. Everything which seems to come out from that side of our political, political wing on the right seems to really, really annoy people at the moment. And I, I, I've i gone from thinking that it's going to be close with the Conservatives managing full employment, getting the inflation back under control, maybe the beginning of interest rates to go back down this time next year, corn election next autumn. I think that's gone. I, I really can't see any way back for them. And that that includes the the our bellwether discussion on Brecon and Radnor. I, I spoke to a few people in Brecon and Radnor recently from a number of parties, and I'd say there's been a change of view and what will happen there. I know people who are who would normally vote blue, who are really fed up. I know people who are Labour, who will vote tactically, and I think the kind of imposition of someone who isn't from the area will be overlooked. I think by the time we elect, he'll be been there for two years. And I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of seats like that 
which people will just be fed up and will want to change. Careful, we're going to get angry tweets again for daring saying that someone came from out the area in uh, Brecon and Radnor, Kerry. Well, it's quite quite funny. I I had a lovely little uh, chat with some Lib Dems yesterday. I I was I shouldn't troll, but I was I was fishing, but I think they put the Lib Dems have gone really popular on my on my timeline, but in one of the by elections, I think it might have been Frome and Somerset or something like that. They put out a really nice tweet about picking uh, a locally born and bred and still lives locally candidate. So I I questioned that a little bit, and I had a few bites which amused me no end. Well, I, I myself uh, inadvertently offended a whole bunch of um, uh, Welsh Lib Democrat can- uh, candidates um, after our last episode by referring to this same question. But actually, on our show notes, and I, you know, we've sort of covered it, so we don't have to go into it. But I do actually have uh, a point on there which says, "Are we underpricing the Lib Dems?" Um, I didn't realise we were going to cover this right now, but actually, I've been following the Welsh Liberal Democrats' online presence a little bit since I've been back. Um, and I have to say, uh, I think it's, is it David Chadwick, um, the candidates that, um, that we talked about previously in BNR? Uh, I don't think they have a candidate yet for uh, Maldoin, uh, Montgomeryshire, as far as I'm aware. But um, I, I increasingly of the mind that we have been underpricing them. And actually, you know, they've been very, very active. Uh, and particularly as those are the two target seats for the Lib Dems in Wales. And there aren't really... You know, there's there isn't really another party that could win those realistically. I um yeah, I think uh, I think there's a very good chance of that. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something you said uh, there, Kerry. Uh, again, something else that happened while I was away, which was the start of the UK COVID inquiry, and I wondered, you know, what should we be expecting from the UK COVID? We're not going to retread the whether there should be a Welsh COVID inquiry because that is that debate is well litigated and ongoing elsewhere. Um, but I thought, what are, what are we going to see from that in terms of Welsh government's presence at that inquiry? Will we see Mark Drakeford? Will we see Vaughan Gething uh, as he's been representing his former role as health minister? Um, and will we see some of the campaign groups that we've seen in Wales and some of the uh, clinical clinical staff? You know, we've had former guests on uh, on the pod here, you know, making contributions to that. Do we feel that that is going to fully capture the Welsh experience of the COVID pandemic? I think I think so. I think um, from what I've looked at it a little bit, and I'm doing some work on one of the modules actually, um, a little bit further down the line. But yeah, I, I think it's gonna it is gonna very much have that kind of Welsh focus, whether we think that's the right way to have gone or not. And I think the opening day speeches, Wales featured quite prominently from a number of the uh, the legal arguments that were there. And I don't think the chair and all those involved have set very clearly how serious it's going to be taken. You know, I think they're looking right the way through to 2026. So I don't think there's going to be any stone unturned. And I, I think today's, uh, we're recording on the Monday, was was really interesting. I think George Osborne was there today talking around... Um, what know, day is it? Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's that's the kind of week I'm having. I'm trying to I'm trying to watch the Ashes as well. Me too. They need six to win. Who, who needs who needs six to win? <laughs> Australia. Australia with two wickets. It's it's crazy. I I oh. anyway. I, I, today's today's thing. I was quite interested. In. They had George Osborne there talking around. You know, did the austerity affect the impact? And you know, depending on your politics, you can say. Uh, whether it did, he batted that away. Do you see what I did there, boys? 
he batted that away quite strongly and said no, he was making the the UK fiscally strong to deal with the pandemic in terms of the fiscal firepower we subsequently brought to it. But then the argument would be everything else which austerity delivered in the years before in terms of beds, clinicians, preparedness, resilience, impacted the our response as well. So like I said earlier, I think this is going to run and run as it as it rightly should do. But it's going to be something which is going to be a thorn in Rishi Sunak's side as he moves towards an election as COVID is just going to be there week after week after week. And similarly, you know, your initial question was about Wales. It is going to be um, what happened in Wales as well, because there were various issues which we know we perhaps should have done differently. It's important to note on that, though, I think that for those who have missed it, there has been a, a, commi- a Senate committee set up that will be co-chaired by Joyce Watson and Tom Gifford um, that will sort of pick up on anything about Wales that is missed out by the UK-wide, co- UK-wide COVID inquiry. So whilst I, I think a lot of people will consider that uh, deeply suboptimal and think that Wales should hold its own inquiry, I suppose that, that is showing that at least if that UK-wide inquiry does miss out bits, that there will be a body with an interest in making sure that they, those those issues are brought to the fore for the, from a Welsh perspective as well. That's that's very very useful to know about. I just sort of I appreciate we've been going a little while already, and I'm sure that loads of other stuff happened while I was away. I mean, we found out that Natasha Askar is not going to be mayor of London, the South Wales East member of the Senate, uh, to nobody's surprise. Um, I think also uh, we haven't talked about Freeports explicitly here on the pod yet in the Welsh context, but. You know, extraordinary reporting by Jen Williams of Welsh Extraction. Um, anybody who doesn't already follow her on Twitter, very good follow. Now works for the FT and um, has been reporting on the Freeport disaster in the northeast of England, Tees Valley, along with, you know, former The National Wales writer Lee Jones uh, at Leesus, who, you know, and I think Freeport seem to be all viewed through the prism now as, you know, Tees Valley used to be the poster child for Freeports uh, under the Conservative government in Westminster and is now, you know, whatever the opposite of a poster child is, um, the enfant ter- terrible no, the, or the, um, uh, you know, the black sheep. Uh, I mean, it is all looking incredibly messy. And I think there's some, although very different contexts in Unismorn and um, in South Wales West, you know, I think Freeports going to continue to be an interesting story. Is there anything else in the news that we should pick up on? Well, one, I thought you went on holiday to Greece and not to France. Uh, but your pronunciation was fantastic. What, what, I must what, say. Is, what is enfant terrible in, um, in, in Greek? I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> um, I think the one that we probably should talk about is the um, discussion that's been going on relating to the Eisteddfod and their uh, Welsh language exclusive policy on the mics. Um, for those of you who hadn't heard about this, the rapper Sage Todds, who'd been... Uh, invited to perform at the Estevod, um, but was told that he was not able to because his songs were, um, they were basically there wasn't enough English, it wasn't enough Welsh in them they, because his, he performs bilingually. And he, I think, probably rightfully said that his songs are finished products and he wasn't going to change them. And then in the last couple of days, we've also seen Izzy Rabby and Edith Crawford uh, pull out for very similar reasons. And there was a huge online furor, as there always is with things like this, um, about essentially whether the Estevod were in the right to do this. 
essentially the Welsh, you know, that the Eisteddfod said that they weren't going to change their mind. They have a it's very strict policy of it being a Welsh language only festival. It's one of the only Welsh language only spaces that remains, especially certainly in terms of cultural festivals like that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's certainly been in the news and probably worth a bit of discussion, Rich. What's your gut thought on the idea of the Eisteddfod remaining a Welsh only festival? Uh, someone who has absolutely no uh, background reading on this particular subject, uh, I feel like this is a huge uh, potential for me to again put my head uh, in the, <laughs> on the block or say something um, particularly you can unwise. Pass. You can pass. I, I, I would. What I would say is that in Wales there should be enough room and enough uh, opportunity for both Welsh language and bilingual and multilingual and English only language festivals and that i think the tensions that appear to be arising from this particular disagreement um i think are arising of the fact out more out of the fact is that fundamentally we in wales don't have enough of our own spaces to do things that represent modern wales in all its different facets um and actually what we probably need to do is find a way to expand the overall breadth of opportunities for performers to to perform in whatever language they want and to you know get in front of audiences and to encourage audiences to you know participate and enjoy music of all languages now i i think that's probably all that's probably the most coherent sensible comment i can make given that i have no idea what's actually the mechanics of this particular um debate are i'm afraid Gary, um it's one i wouldn't want to get involved it's not a kind of cultural area i'm familiar with although my youngest was on one of the stages uh, this year. Very proud dad to have her singing in her school choir. First, probably, of my Davis family to have appeared on the main Earth stage. And she was also on a couple of video clips with S4C. So it, it's my daughter's generation who will be making these kind of decisions on what modern Wales, mo what modern Welsh language is for them. I'm... I'm a still a learner. I've got GCSE Welsh and I've got an inordinate amount of in-work training, but I'm still not confident speaking Welsh. So, you know, for me to comment on what the instead of organisers and performers think is appropriate, I, I just don't feel in a position to do that. But modern Wales is a bilingual nation and, you know, that, has to be one of the ways we look at these things i think the one the one way i will follow this up matt and the one thing that i can say with a degree of certainty is that the esteddfod this year is going to be quite notable because there will be at least two fantastic live podcast recordings <laughs> on the mice and uh, please uh, please everybody pay attention uh, if you are going to the Estethvod about the schedule for the first Saturday and the Friday uh, of um, the uh, the Estethvod, more, well, more, 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 more to follow. More to follow. <laughs> uh, um, I I mean, for what it's worth, uh, I think that some of the best conversations I had on this, uh, I've seen on this, uh, are really enlightening. I can completely understand the Estethvod's. Uh, situation where they feel they have an obligation to defend the language and to defend and to, to preserve this Welsh language only space. 
I really do fundamentally get that. But exactly what Kerry said, it, Wales is a bilingual nation. And, you know, having taken, you know, English language only speakers to the festival in the past, it can be a little difficult. I think that there needs to, uh, for them to be fully engaged with the, the festival. And I, I think that there is certainly more what the VS Devil could do in terms of making people feel uh, they can come there with any level of Welsh. Uh, but also a, a really interesting point that was made is that spaces like Mice B, for those who don't know, is a sort of more alternative uh, mice uh, where the younger generation tend to hang around. I, I said that sentence and I felt immediately about 50 million years old, but where the younger crowd tend to hang out on Mice B in Mice Devils. And... Previously, that was a sort of fringe. So the rules on language there were very lax. People could speak primarily uh, Welsh. They could be a bit more bilingual. They could they mix and match in the way that I think most young Welsh speakers do. No one is speaking um, Welsh, you know, a perfect literary Welsh, the Estedbog. And if they are, they're certainly, a, they're, they're, they're very unlikely to be of the younger generation. And as, as the language develops, it will probably go more that way than less. So, I mean, a really interesting uh, discussion that I, I, I saw was about whether there is any space for a new fringe to the Oisteadvod where people can still feel part of the overall festival, but whether the rules are slightly less strict so that people with varying degrees of Welsh skill and comprehension and confidence, where they can maybe get involved with the festival as well. So I think that's the, that's the sort of compromise, I think. I understand why... The mice has to be a Welsh-only space, absolutely fine. No query that at all, but maybe there's something that the Estebel could do to make sure there is that that space for more bilingual performance. Now, if I, if I had more energy right now, this is where I would make my case for uh, S4C to launch an English-language or bilingual channel alongside. Uh, we've done that a lot, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, But I'm not going to do that. I think I'm going to try and gently move us towards uh, the closing part of this podcast. And I believe that there is another issue a burning issue that you guys have popped in the outline that um, that you'd like to discuss? Well, uh, you know, obviously we, uh, as Welsh football fans, have suffered a little bit in the last couple of days. Obviously, Rich, you were um, not able to watch the game live on Friday, but I think uh, me and Kerry moaning away in the Here I group chat on, on Friday, for differing reasons, I'll say, um, sort of gave you some insight as to what was happening, but what was your overall take on what it can only be regarded as one of the most depressing weekends in world football for about 10 years? Well, I mean, just to give you a bit of context, I was stuck in a multi-hour Brexit-caused uh, em <laughs> emigration queue. This is the thing, is that I was stuck in an airport queuing with about, I'd probably say about six to 700 other UK citizens most of whom were utterly perplexed about why all of a sudden it was only the people from the UK that had to queue in a separate line for a separate flight and go through an extra layer of passport control. And it definitely wasn't anything to do with Brexit because Boris is a god. That's pretty much sums up most of the conversations that um, uh, that I had. And to, to make matters worse, I was missing what I hope would be a really extraordinary Wales football game. Um, and I think I might be, I might, this might be a false memory, but I seem to remember the last moment of 4G connection I had was uh, a glow of joy after Dan James, I think it was, had put us in the lead around 10 minutes. And there was me thinking, oh, right, after all of that pain, I, I'm going to have a nice couple of hours sleep on the plane and then I'll arrive back 
And then the first notification that I had when I when the plane touched down and the 4G went back on, Kiefer Moore red card, uh, swiftly followed by the result. And I, I, you know, I only watched the game later in the weekend. Um, but I have to say, uh, having also watched the Turkey game uh, last night, was it last night? Yes, it was last night. Yeah, it has been a bleak weekend. It's been a bleak sporting weekend for Welsh football. And I don't like calling for people to lose their jobs. And I love Rob Page as a human being. I think he is, and you know, as a Welshman, actually, from the Valleys, I think many, many of the qualities that he has brought to that role are very good for Welsh football. But I understand why so many people are questioning whether he's the right person to take Wales forward because there has been a distinct problem uh, that was evident at the World Cup but has also followed us afterwards. Um, but I will quickly say, Wales ent- men's ent- under-21 team doing all right. They've just had a great result in Denmark. But doesn't that mean that we should be doing things a bit differently? Because if you, for argument's sake, say that this qualifying campaign is done, although because of how rigged international football is, there's still a very good chance that Wales will get a playoff place because we were in uh, the, the A groups for the Nations League isn't now the time to take the rest of these qualifying games and blood some youngsters fantastic players like we've got in the under 21s uh, and and get them some international experience even the boys on the, who sit on the bench now in, in the Wales men's national team you could be playing them more because as much as I love people like Aaron Ramsey, as you know, as a Welsh Arsenal fan, that man has given me more joy than potentially any footballer in the world. But for me, I just don't see how he currently works in this lineup anymore. And I, it would be a perfect opportunity now for, and I again, I completely agree with you, Rich. I'm not a person who usually calls for people to lose their jobs, but I just think Rob Page has probably had his time now as Wales manager. But to get someone in who can, who doesn't have the necessarily the close bond that he, that, that Rob Page has with the players to be a bit more callous, be a bit more cutthroat, and to say to some players, I think you've had your time, and we need to bring some new young players in. Because we have got exciting young players like Brennan Johnson, like Ethan Ampadu. But, I mean, we I think we probably need a new goalkeeper. Uh, we probably need a bunch of new centre-halves. We need a whole new midfield. And unfortunately, because Wales is not owned by some sort of oil state, and because the rules of international football prohibit it, we can't just go out and buy these players. We've got to bind them and blood them. That we need to take a sort of Toshak-style approach, which I know will be deeply, deeply unpopular. And the look you're giving me now tells me how deeply unpopular that will be. But we need to take that kind of approach and to, to plan for the future. I, I'm just going to jump in. Australia have just won by two wickets. One, this is one of the most exciting pods we've ever done. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your football flow there, Matt. Do you know, Rich? No, I don't think there's anything that ever justifies a Toshak-style approach. I'm just going to put that on record. Having <laughs> having been a photographer as pitch side with uh, Dragon Soccer for most of the Toshak reign, it, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. Um, but it's why we got to where we got to. Well, he, did, he, didn't, he didn't sire... Gareth Bale and, no, <laughs> and Aaron no. Ramsey. You know, they, they were coming through anyway. The fact that he managed to accelerate it a little bit whilst picking, you know, people people talk about the Toshak reign now as if he he masterfully guided these <laughs> young players through 
um, and and there was no way they were going to rise to the top. But meanwhile, I mean, I hate to be blunt about it. Meanwhile, he also picked an awful lot of players which have never been heard of again. In fact, some of them didn't even see out their footballing careers because they were really not very good. So he has many qualities, does Tosh, for sure. Um, but his period of uh, of Welsh running the Welsh football team, both of them uh, were, for myself, <laughs> um, pretty unsatisfactory experiences. But the, the thing is, we never know. Um, and I apologise to any listener that doesn't care about Welsh football because I know... <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, I spe- yes, there are plenty. And I, one of them gave me a bit of grief for being football obsessed over the weekend. I think that the thing is, we just don't know. If you recall, there was a period under Gary Speed of utter bleakness, rubbish results, terrible. There was a period under Chris Coleman's leadership that was the same. They managed to find their way eventually. And whilst some might say that Robbie Page has been in post long enough to have found his way already, that's entirely possible. But it could also be that you know, simply by losing such dominant players within the squad, the squad itself is not what it once was. And it is difficult to coax out of players that are many of them either not playing regularly or not playing at the top level, the kind of performances that we have become accustomed to. Um, It also doesn't help, I think, and we saw this at the World Cup and in the two last two games, that for some reason Wales have not have stopped just playing in red, but they've started to acquire extra little bits of red in the shape of little <laughs> plastic rectangles, and I don't understand why that is happening because our uh, the number of red cards. Uh, Neil Roberts from Dragon Soccer was um, posting on uh, Twitter about this earlier today. The number of red cards cards we've acquired in the last two years has been way above any previous number of red cards that we've acquired, and that is very odd. And I don't know if that's a coaching thing or if that's a player thing, or it might just be simply a frustration thing that we're not reaching the levels that we expect of ourselves these days. We'll never know the counterfactual. If Rob Page were to go now, believe it or not, things could get worse. Um, There's no guarantee that a change necessarily brings out things for the better. People who watched Welsh football in the 1990s know this to be a fact. Um, It could also be that Rob Page manages to find a better blend. I think what what makes it difficult for people is listening to Oshan Roberts on Espedwarak commentating and thinking, you know, how integral he was to our success in the 2010s um, uh, and wondering what might be if he was involved once more. We shall see. Um, as, again, as an Arsenal fan, assistant to Patrick Vieira, bring it on. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kerry, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I still love Welsh football and I've been in the I've been in the hard yards in the past and we never qualified for anything. And it is it is a gloomy time at the moment, but um I you know, I still think we've got a really good crop of young players. There is that issue with the manager and you know, how long does he persist with some of the older legs? But you know, we shall see. I'm a huge Welsh rugby fan as well. Trust me. We've talked about football. Welsh rugby is not looking great at the moment either with a World Cup year. But what we have got is Johnny Clayton and Gezi. So we are currently world uh, darts champions. So, you know, if it swings and roundabouts. Right, gentlemen. I think we shall close tonight's proceedings. However, before we go, uh, for those who follow us on Twitter, you may have seen us advertise the fact that we're doing a little... Here I tour this summer. Um, so at the minute, we have three live events scheduled. 
the first of which will be taking place on Thursday, July 6th at the Senate, where we'll be with the Wales Governance Centre um, talking to Nye Davis about his uh, new book, which is a collection of essays from Tribune, uh, from uh, Nye Bevan. Um, then also at the end of July, on the Thursday at the Royal Welsh Show, we will be with the FUW talking about Brexit and its impact on agriculture. Uh, and then in uh, August, on the 11th, I believe, of August, the Friday, we will be at the Eisteddfod. Details of that will follow. But I hope if any of you are available or nearby for any of those live dates, please pop down and come see us. We'd love to see you. love to have a chat. Um, there will all be interactive events where you'll be able to ask questions from the audience as well. So please feel free. We, we love meeting uh, listeners. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you very much to Richard Martin. Where can people find you on Twitter, Rich? Uh, as always, uh, at Mimosa Cymru on Twitter. Thank you very much. Uh, Kerry Davis, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm Kerry the Viking on Twitter, and you can find me at Kerry John Davis at LinkedIn. I, I'm, I'm widening my social media handles. Ooh, on here. Well, yeah. Are you widening. looking for a job? Are you looking Ooh. for a job then, Kerry? Is that why you're on LinkedIn all of a sudden? I, I, I'm always on, I, I, I like LinkedIn. The professional side of me is on LinkedIn. You are a very good LinkedIn poster. I will say that. I'm pretty poor at posting on LinkedIn. I'll do it if I create an interesting Senate model or a cool map or something, but that's about it. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101, or, or you go LinkedIn, Matthew Hexter on LinkedIn. Um, but you can also find Hereith on all the socials at Pod. You can go to our website, www.walespolitics.com, and thank you so much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can also find us at www.patreon.com forward slash Pod. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.